podcast. I'm the host, Sean Boyce. I'd like to welcome my guest to the show today, Bob Lewis from the Visionary Group. Hello, Bob. How are you? And thanks for being on the show. I'm doing great. Sean, uh, it's uh, it's always an interesting adventure day to day, week to week out here in the accounting world. So uh, for what we do specifically. Agreed. And look forward to diving more into that. Uh, but before we do, uh, if you wouldn't mind to for our audience to learn a little bit more about you, can you share some more detail about your background and how you got to where you are today? Okay, so uh, Sean, we we exclusively work with CPA firms nationwide. Also, some providers into the industry, like we're working with some private equity groups, a couple of registered investment advisors that are related and tied to the industry, as well as some third party uh, uh, vendor kind of applications that are again trying to relate back to the CPA industry. I have been I started this company 27 years ago. I know you're thinking, how could it be? I look so young, but um, <laughs> but I started this thing 27 years ago when accounting marketing um, for accounting firms is just legal. Like it was illegal to market for accounting firms like 30 some years ago. Interesting little point, side note there. Before I did all this, um, I spent 10 years in the private sector. Um, so yeah, I'm carbon dating myself at this point with the 10 and the third 27, but okay. So um, I did, I did, uh, I ran a regional accounting department for a fortune uh, 36 company, uh, you know, accounts payable, billables, accounting side of it, budget planning. I did a lot of financial analysis prior to that. So I was a, I don't know, some kind of a senior financial analyst. I prepared budgets and, and, and really looked through for all the cracks on where everything would go. See, one of the things you learned that when you, when you're in an accounting kind of role and you're specifically doing like any kind of budgeting or strategy, kind of like forecast work, you always find a way to make the numbers sound better or worse, depending on what you're trying to make <laughs> happen. So I did a lot of those, uh, those things over the years. And, um, uh, that's kind of really able to background on this. And at one point, I started working um, with one of the large companies doing a business process reengineering effort in the accounting sector. And after that, um, I spent several of those years, next year, dealing with CIOs and CFOs across the country, trying to help them figure out how to how to restructure the financial departments. Uh, I know that this may sound archaic to some of the younger audience, but the large public companies and private companies would take up to three months to close their books because their system wouldn't allow them to be able to close it any quicker. So everything was forecasted. Um, so part of the restructuring back in those days was how do you incorporate the technology and the software and make it all work? People, the people changes to get the close times down to a more reasonable period. And um, you know now everything is pseudo instantaneous, but it wasn't 20 some years ago. It was, um, it was pretty nightmarish. Um, a long and how they used to do the work. So I was in very large corporations doing this. I will not name the name of the corporations, uh, but they all had the same common problem. And they all were spinning uh, IBM 3090, you know, real to real tapes in the back room with uh, not a lot of real time access or ability to, to pull information from them. But those days were kind of gone. So checkered background. There we are, Sean. <laughs> Super we helpful. Next? Thank you, Bob. Much appreciated. Uh, I want to dive into a topic related to something I've read of yours recently on an article I saw on Accounting Today, which was super interesting. It's a concept that was relatively new to me as well. Everybody's heard about, obviously, the great resignation and the impact that that's had on the accounting industry. But in your article, you talked about the great liberation. So I'd love for you to kind of describe more about what that is so people listening have a better idea and talking about more about what that means for the accounting industry in general. Okay, so 
there have been thousands of articles and seminars and events on the Great Resignation. So if anybody has not caught up to this yet, that means people are leaving the industry in droves, okay? It starts with the inflow. So over the last 10 years, because we've actually went back and pulled the statistics, there are less people that sit for the CPA exam every year than there were up 10 years ago, not percentage-wise, physically less numbers. So what we'd like to do is think of a think of a swimming pool. And you got you got the, the drip coming in from the new CPA sitting, right? In the middle of the pool, you've got maybe some side cracks where people go, oh, I really don't like this. I'm going to go into the private sector and they, they leave. In the back end of the pool, you got a raging hole of aging CPAs that are retiring. So no matter how hard you struggle to fill the pool with water, you're always going to lose water. It's always going to continue to recede. So the great liberation is really pretty simple. You need to come to grips on the reality that the staffing pool is not going to get any larger. The larger firms, many of the larger firms have already done this. They've diversified their revenue streams to 40, 50% of advisory. They've gotten away from the compliance. It'll always be there. Compliance is the core function that a CPA firm has. Also, just to throw a little side note in there, can't figure out why audit firms have managed to figure out a way to reduce the value of the audit department when you're the only one that can issue a financial statement certification. But, you know, so, but if there's less people able to do the compliance work and that we know that's going to continue, you need to shift your revenue stream. So this, the great liberation is look, come to the reality inside your firm and go, how do we free ourselves from our old model? We want to retain some of that old model, but how do we move to a new model? That's the liberation. You need to sit down and figure out how to move into the advisory sector or open up a different business line of something else. Otherwise, your growth is going to be flatlined. And here's where it gets a little worse. Okay. Let's assume you want to be the compliance only firm and specifically stay a generalist compliance only firm. On the, on the MA work that we do, a generalist compliance only firm has the lowest amount of value. That is a, nobody, nobody really wants it anymore. If you're a specialist, in an area like you do construction only, or you do you know, publicly traded companies or something, that value starts to increase as a compliance only firm. And the problem's gonna be, how do you attract recruits in a compliance only firm going forward when the professional community thinks they need to have an advisory balanced revenue firm? You're not, you're gonna end up battling a hard battle to find recruits to come in to a compliance only firm. And, and values will just continue to diminish in the, value, in, the, in the value of your firm when you either go to do an internal succession or you go to bring it to market to sell or to merge it upward. And that's an unfortunate story we see almost daily here. We have a, we have a lot of merger and acquisition work we do here. And um, we talk to, we've got five M&A consultants whose entire job is to sit there all day long and talk to firms. And they're very good at it. And we, uh, we have conversations literally every day with firms that, I know it's tax day, we will have a conversation with multiple firms today on tax day about they don't know what to do and they're kind of stuck and their succession team doesn't want to take over. And then we start to look at the value of the firm, like the pieces of it, and the mix isn't good. Then there's others who have a really nice balanced firm and are looking ahead and looking to how do we get out and emerge up the same, you know, successfully. Well said. Super interesting. And it's uh, this content I've been um, writing about more recently as well, also from several conversations we've had, but I have a lot of questions from where you started about <laughs> what I'm sure these firms are thinking through hearing this from you. The first probably is related to 
how should they go about thinking about making this transition if they're in one of these compliance only kind of or compliance primarily focused areas in terms of raising the value of the service they offer, further differentiating. You talked about specialization. Love to hear you talk a little bit more about how they should be thinking about making those steps, making those investments so they don't wind up in these traps. Okay. So first, the first thing to look at is you've got a limited pool of CPAs, right? We've established that that's a definitely not a growing number, right? So why would I take one of my auditors or tax professionals and convert them into a consultant or try and get them to do consulting work? So that has been the path a lot of firms have taken, and it kind of fails because they, the first, the auditor and the tax professional don't want to do consulting. Second, yep. they don't really have the time for it. They're not trained for it. When you do any kind of advisory consulting related services, it's a different model than doing compliance. I would be horrible doing an audit or tax return. And keep in mind, I've got financial background. It's, it's older financial background, but you know that's rules-driven with some judgment, but there's a lot of rules and guidelines. It's a, you need to be extremely skilled to be able to pull it off. When you get into advisory world, it's a, it's a white sheet of paper. If I go into your company, Sean, and try and figure out what to do to help you, you could be completely different than the company across the street. And that requires a different mindset, different approach than, than typically how our compliance people have been trained. What we need to do is start to partner. So there's two things we're doing. You partner with outside advisory agencies to start with, okay? And then you start to look at acquiring them and or hiring specialists in that area. So the, the, to me, the lowest hanging fruit is uh, investment banking because you always got companies that want to sell, okay? So teach your people how to develop an exit strategy, okay? Bring in a consulting firm that works on that, Make, a, make an affiliation with an investment banking organization to help you sell the company and ideally pick up some of the revenue stream and at some point bring investment banking in-house if you have enough opportunity to scale. But teach your internal compliance-related professionals how to identify the opportunity at a client base and then what to do with that identification and bring in the people to help have that conversation. So there's normally in every firm, there's a handful of partners or he or she can go in and talk about literally almost anything because they... They know how to have the conversation structure it, knowing they don't have to come up with the answers. That's what we need to teach the professionals how to do. The largest growth area we're seeing in M&A right now, by the way, Sean, every, um, every firm that's calling us of any size, and I'll call any size, like 10 million on up, and we've had quite a few new additions in the last just couple of weeks, they're looking for non-accounting businesses. They're looking for cyber. They're looking for... Yep. You know, uh, medical consulting, whatever, anything that isn't a traditional compliance related shop. Now, they'll still look for a CPA firm that has a good compliance background, but they're looking to diversify. And um, the only way they're going to find to do it right now is to partner and to bring these people in. Um, and that's where the, the market gets interesting now, because with private equity in there, yep. the values are just jumping all skyrocketing, over. right? Well, they're all over. It's like it's inconsistent. It would be different if you're skyrocketing. You know what you're doing. Yeah, it's <laughs> just inconsistent across the board. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that's what's making the game a little bit, a uh, little bit more interesting. Making that harder. Super interesting. Yeah, that's excellent advice. Um, in carrying with that same trend, another element that you mentioned is a challenge in developing at the moment as well. Too is combating this element of. Uh, related to the great resignation, the retention and turnover issues that a lot of these firms are having, 
because of the work that their firms, you know, the large largest percentage of their team members are kind of expected to be doing, that was kind of a thing of the past needs to shift into the future. You talked about um, having the right team members focusing on the right type of effort and avoiding these like relatively low success rate and inefficient like uh, strategies to try to convert them from doing one type of work that they have been doing to a different type of work as the trend develops in the consulting direction. But you talked about before as well too, how to ensure that you're providing your team with the most like engaging and rewarding work that they can do and alleviating them from some of these concerns of the boring, monotonous routine, kind of busy admin like type work related to investments they can make in automation and technology. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that as well too, because I know you've uh, talked about that topic before. Okay, so kind of the first point to maybe think about when firms grow is is they get bigger, um, they start adding different kinds of clients, yet they still retain a lot of the initial initial clients that they had when they were growing. So the problem becomes a bit of a mix now. So you were, you know, $2 million firm and now you're 20. Yep. And you've got a lot of clients still in your base that when you were two and three and four, five and six, yep. smaller organizations, maybe the fees weren't quite there, heavily compliance focused. They didn't have a lot of other needs for other value add, mm-hmm. at least in their mind. And now you're dealing with a $20 million firm who really can't afford to service those clients because the resources are short. The people don't want to work on them because they don't pay as much. They often can be more difficult than a larger client. Not that smaller clients are more difficult than larger clients, but it's a lot easier to deal with one large client than 10 small, smaller clients that are unhappy. Yeah. You know, are not unhappy, but difficult, complex. It's just 10 sets of communication. Right. This is one, right? Sure. So, so one of the things we really strongly recommend clients do, and, and, and they've been going through it, you can only raise fees so long. You know, there's a there's a limit on where I think there's going to be a cap on fees. So you really need to look at, can I afford to service this client anymore is the first question. Am I servicing them at the right fee? Second question. And third, what else do they need? So maybe I have a, a, a C-level client. I mean, it's not executive level. Like it's, it's ABC scale, okay? They're a yes. C. I really can't charge them much more. They don't need much more, but they have other needs. So the question becomes, does that C client now become a B or an A from other services I can provide that have nothing to do historically with compliance? So you need to start to call that client base. But the first thing is, how do you actually, we, we, we create these, what we call scatter graphs. Um, nice. Okay, so you get a line in there of where you think profitability is, and then you start to put your people over the graph, go, okay, why am I servicing these clients that are below the line in low revenue? How do I look at this? Then how do I look at my upper right quadrant? My upper right quadrant is typically high fee, high margin. How do I get them? What are the attributes there? Am I realigning my overall business development and marketing into those quadrant type of people? Or am I still focusing on the easier to get smaller client, which gets into another problem. So if you deal with a lot of partners and firms, um, there's some incredibly um, progressive minded, aggressive, creative partners running firms. I mean, you put them in a room and they'll adapt and evolve literally in seconds as the conversation evolves. Then you've got a lot of other partners that are much more risk adverse, like the norm, um, don't feel like they charge more to a client because they don't want to have that conversation because they don't know how to overcome that conversation. I don't, you know, so Sean, if I have to call you and go, so Sean, uh, you know, we'd love to work with you. We, you know, your fees are going to be up 40% this year. 
okay? So if I'm not really good at having that negative conversation, they may get with you. And if I'm lucky, you'll say nothing, <laughs> okay? That's what I'm open for. You'll say nothing at all. But if you call me now and say, well, well Bob, what's going on? Where are my fees going? Well, I have to be able to handle that, okay? Right. I don't know how to handle that conversation. I don't want to handle that conversation. So my other option is I don't raise your fees. Continue to service you, and I continue to put my people's resources on working on you. You're a less profitable client, yep. um, but it keeps things simple and stable. That's one of the issues firms need to address because even if you have the most progressive-minded managing partner in the world and an executive committee that supports him or her, if you can't get the rest of the machine swinging in the same direction, you're going to still be stuck in the mire. So. Identify the kind of client base and figure out where you're at, where you need to start taking these changes. The big thing is, where do you want to begin to market the firm as you go forward? Even if you're still stuck with some of the old baggage that you can't get rid of for whatever reason. And there's a reason why sometimes you keep a client on who's under, under fee or maybe difficult or complicated because you need them strategically. And there is some loyalty. I mean, let's, let's face it, firms are loyal. I, everyone, we, we've got loyalty to the clients as well. Um, and there's some of the emotional element in there, but at the end of the day, you want to be looking either upstream or into a niche. So yeah. look, we, we have this thing called building enterprise value. Okay. Every action you take should be looking to build the enterprise value of the firm as if you were going to sell it in the open market tomorrow. Yeah. Now, love that strategy. You may never sell it in the open market tomorrow. And honestly, most firms really don't sell. They merge and then there's a transition. So it's like a hybrid, uh, a merger and a sale. Yep. But you also want to have it so you're optimizing performance with by building enterprise value and creating a firm that's attractive to the succession team coming in so that if you want to retain the legacy, the succession team feels that they're going to be buying into something of high value and something that they're just got a high energy, high feel to it. And that's actually right now where we're disconnects is going on in the MA market is. I think a lot of the succession, well, I don't think, I know a lot of the succession team is like, I don't, I don't want to make the investment um, and or I'm not comfortable being able to run the firm like you ran it because I don't want to either have that difficult conversation. I've never had to bring in work. I don't have to, I, I don't have a network of any shape or form. That's one of the bad things that's occurred from the shortage and COVID actually made it worse. Um, I don't have a network. Um, I've not had to sell because there's been no need for me to bring in work. And if you peel back 20 years ago, a lot of the partners that are in existence today, how they got to be a partner in many cases is they, they develop business. And that's, that's becoming a, a more difficult thing for many of the partners to develop business. And with that said, there's a lot of really good firms out there where the partners are razor sharp and they know how to sell. They know how to bring in work. They know how to do the client calling, but there's 45,000 CPA firms out there you know, maybe a thousand of them are really good at this. Yeah, well said. So, awesome <laughs> so right. you know, crowd space. And uh, part of what you said there, I imagine, has to help also with something you've spoken about in terms of its level of importance and differentiation, where you're using that like two by two matrix approach, figuring out what the high value and high margin services are that you offer to figure out how to further differentiate your firm. You talked about the direction in which you want to go from a marketing perspective. That has to all kind of help and be probably a, an important byproduct of fulfilling that exercise as well, too, for firms. Yeah, I mean, they, so here, here's, you kind of touched on an interesting point. So that let's just say that everybody knows that there is a need for cyber, okay, mm -hmm. some level. So my firm has never done any cyber. We don't, don't have any technology. 
I'm sitting there going, well, let's let's deep dive into cyber. That may not be your best play. Okay. Yeah. Your best play may be to maybe create an affiliation with somebody who can handle the cyber. And if you're part of an you know, accounting association network, you can typically find arrangements for that to happen. But your better play would be to figure out some services that you could maybe more readily put in play. I also like to look at service niches two ways. You've got an industry niche and a service niche. Industry niches are harder to develop. So if I want to be the expert in manufacturing, I have to be able to go to a manufacturer and, and talk very specific manufacturing details and content. Yep, language. I create a service niche on exit planning, uh, fraud, internal control, cyber, uh, uh, human resources, whatever, okay? Um, I can cut that across multiple industries. And to me, it's easier to establish a service niche than it is an industry niche. It takes a lot of experience to create an industry niche. So if you have the inklings of an industry niche in place, how do you begin to expand it? And is that the right niche? So is is manufacturing, as an example, the industry niche you'd want to develop right now? For some areas, yes. For some, probably not. Um, but I like that concept because if they start thinking about it, they can they can readily begin to implement organizations like like niches of shapes that make sense for them if they already have some footprint about it. And if they don't, okay. you start from scratch, go after a service niche, easier to create. Well said. Yeah, I like that construct of the uh, industry versus service. It's really a uh, really good way to think about it in terms of figuring out what next steps might be for you and ultimately what you might need to do in order to develop either. Very cool. I'm in an industry niche, John. Yep. Other thing too is you got to look back and go, that got me to where I'm at now. Yep. That's not where I need to be going forward. Well <laughs> okay. said. How's that trending, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's important to keep your eye on that as well, too. So there's a whole other layer to that as well, in terms of how is that industry doing? Uh, what does the future outlook for it look like itself? Yeah. yeah. Well said. Um, awesome. Bob, thank you a ton for, for being here and sharing your experience. Um, couple questions for you before we let you go. Sure. First is, are there any resources in particular that you would recommend people dive it further into where they can go to learn more about anything we talked about here today or anything that you might recommend? In terms of like uh, internet-based or tools? Um, yeah, absolutely. Really anything. Um, content that you guys produce. I know you have a, I'm not sure when this episode in particular is going to drop, but I know you have a, an event coming up to talk more about a lot of this content. We could talk about that here because I'm sure Folks can track that down, even if that event is passed. We'll do well. Every every event we do, we we event we put up on our website early the same day or next. So Excellent. the running is four twenty six on that great liberation. Um, but we have we have other events coming up on private equity uh, operating agreements, which by the way are interesting. As boring as an operating agreement sounds like it would be, right? Yeah, it's one of the key drivers messing up, screwing up firms' progress in either bringing in equity partners. Um, being able to make the, the compensation programs change because yep. they have a lot of legacy operating agreements that are just really out of date and not attractive to uh, the next generation coming in. It also can prevent firms from taking certain kinds of moves. So a boring topic like an operating agreement can be a very interesting conversation to well people that are involved in operating agreements inside firms. But um, in terms of resources, look, to, to me, the best thing is continue to look at these different events that are out there. Um, there's there's some really interesting event topics, interesting speakers out there, and there's those that are extremely technical. Um, I'm not really on the technical side of the house. I know a lot more about things than I should know, but I, I'm I'm shallow when it gets to that by design. I don't want to be able to. I can explain on R and D credit, 
I understand the basics of it. I don't want to. I'm going to put that over to one of our clients to explain when that situation arises. So, because they can go very deep. But so, very cool. Question, thoughts? Yeah, I will. Uh, I will link to, or we'll make sure that we link to any area where folks can go to see any events that you guys have put on. So I know those are always excellent, um, as well as some of these other recommendations as well too. They'll be included in the show notes. And then, uh, last question I have for you is: Who should reach out to you, and how can they get in touch? Um. B. Lewis at thinkvisionary.com or go to our website, thinkvisionary.com. Watch for advisoryofficer.com. That's coming out very soon. That has a whole different twist on how to attack this advisory marketplace. Uh, you can get me through LinkedIn. I will talk to anybody about anything. I have no problem. Size of firm. Um, we deal with um, top 10 down to maybe a 20, 10 person firm, depending on what their needs are. The, the typical firms we get involved in more on a monthly basis or more aggressive basis are about 20 people and up, but we help a lot of the smaller firms figure out what to do. Um, and some of them, they need somebody to, to sell them or merge them upward. We do that quite a bit. Um, we are about 75% on the M&A side for search side, you know, buy side and about 25% sell side. And um, I have no idea how that's going to shake out in a year or two. That, there's they continue more and more continue to try and race to the exit door so i'm not sure how this merger and acquisition world is going to go all i do know is if you are a, a top you know 200 firm there's a really good chance you could be top 190 by doing nothing <laughs> because because there's people above you people above you just continue to, to to merge together or whatever so you can rise the ranks without literally doing almost anything to make that happen don't suggest that strategy but you know it, it is kind of shake funny. out that way. Happened in, happened in a conversation the other day when somebody said, "Yeah, I think I'm going to jump five spots by the end of the year, <laughs> just sitting there." So, how about um, that? Yeah, that gives you an idea just how quickly the uh, space is changing. Yeah, very much, and it's it's um, it's kind of fun to be honest with you. The yeah, cool. amount of information that managing partners share with us and the ideas. There's an awful lot of smart people out there, and um, super cool. We're very lucky to have got ourselves in this position to have these conversations. So fantastic. Um, appreciate the time. Um, of course. Absolutely. Thank you for being here, Bob, and sharing your experience with both uh, myself and our audience. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for listening to this episode of Accounting Automation. I hope you found it valuable. I help accounting firms scale their profit exponentially without needing to hire any additional accountants. So if your firm is in growth mode and can't keep up, I'd love to talk to you more about how I can empower your firm to do more with less through automation and technology. To learn more, visit my website, nextstep.io, or email me, sean at nextstep.io. That's sean, S-E-A-N, at nextstep, N-X-T-S-T-E-P, dot I-O. Hey folks, Sean here, and I want to thank you for engaging with my content and encourage you to sign up for my free five-day video email course called Bottleneck Buster. Bottleneck Buster is designed to show you how to boost the profitability of your firm without hiring. You'll learn where your firm is wasting time, how to get that time back, and how to reinvest it to drive greater profitability. Sign up for the course at bottleneckbuster.com.